everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey, everybody. I'm chewing. <laughs> I am eating something that I just told Lisa earlier. I thought was the coolest thing around. It's called an uncrustable. But she said it's been there forever. And she's got a little device. She'll probably show where she cuts them up for her now 19-year-old even. So I'm No, ready. not anymore. He's still, he'll eat the crust now. So. <laughs> well, we are so excited. We have got Joe Weston on with us today. And we're going to uh, basically do an interview format, literally just let Joe share. And we've got a bunch of questions for him. And we'd actually like you to ask. We'd really much rather have your questions than ours. And um, no, no uh, guidelines other than be nice. Um, and Joe is a conflict resolution guy. So... Uh, hopefully, he can even tell us some things about uh, being nice. So let's start with that, Joe. Tell us about. I will your... start with that actually. But first of all, I just want to say I'm here with my cup of tea. Um, it's a mug that I got. I've, I've, I've worked at NASA for 10, 12 years, and I, this is a mug. You can see the constant when you put hot liquid in. You can see the constellation. So I'm ready with my tea for our conversation. And yes. Uh, uh, what we want to try to avoid is niceness. I call it chronic niceness, is that a lot of times, because uh, basically my whole life has been exploring what is the root cause of conflict, of arguments and fights. That's been the fundamental question since I've been a kid growing up in Queens, New York, and a pretty volatile situation uh, to, to working in conflict zones and, and around the world. And part of that is not just that People are mean and bullies and aggressive, but it also has to do with the uh, the ways in which we don't speak our truth, the ways in which we're not fierce and courageous, and what needs to be said. Uh, uh, and and you know, in a sense, saying yes when you should say no, or saying no when you should say yes, or not saying anything when you see an injustice happening, or you see people being harmed or being discredited. And that on, you know, on, uh, in, in that moment, it may not seem like a lot, but that's just the same thing as like what chronic pain is. We all suffer. So many of us, we say we suffer from lower back pain and chronic pain. And we think tomorrow I'll go to the doctor or tomorrow I'll go to the gym. And then we don't. And then before we know it, we have serious back problems. And I believe it's the same thing with chronic niceness is that today we may not be dealing with that issue, but because we're not dealing with it, the problem doesn't go away. And in, in fact, it begins to fester and it begins to create resentments and breakdown in relationship and lack of trust. And then when it finally needs to be addressed, it's suddenly a big thing. So in a sense, what you're dealing with, what I say is my work is more about conflict prevention than conflict resolution. I do conflict resolution and conflict resolution mediation work. But the whole idea is how can we train ourselves at the moment we feel that things are going to go off the rails or there's going to be a rupture in the relationship that we can in that moment with skill, with fierceness and with kindness, uh, address it 
resolve it when the tension isn't so high, which makes it easier to resolve, and then we move on. That's a that's just a general idea about uh, your question about niceness. So let's not be nice. Let's be kind. Let's 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 uh, be fierce. Uh, let's be compassionate. Let's be respectful, and let's um, hold each other in our highest, which means that we can, in a sense, create a culture of mutual empowerment, uh, which 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 includes um, kindness, compassion, taking care of one another. And I believe must also include um, having the courage to speak truth when it's needed in a respectful way. Is there a personality type that deals with that approach more easily or, or with more difficult than another, healthy than another type? Um, perhaps. I mean, what I, what I, so I've, I've got two bodies of work. One's called respectful confrontation. The other one's called fear civility. And I started with respectful confrontation, which was more about how to help people confront aspects of themselves and also uh, confront in relationships in a way that, and so it's reframing what confrontation is, that it's not conflict and that it actually is the most effective way to deepen relationship and build safety and trust. Where, and then fear civility, which is a, uh, the newer work that I've done, which I've just published a new book on this year, uh, last spring, is more about how do we confront aspects of our society and 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 address the extreme polarization. And in the in the respectful confrontation work, I say we you know what it, there's a reason why I use those two words because there's a tension there, even in fear civility. That because um, we most I think most of the conflicts we find we get ourselves is when we hold on to a sort of false polarity that there's either this choice or that choice. And that limits us. So going back to your question, is there a personality type? If you look at respectful and confrontation, there are people who are really good with confronting. They have no problems speaking their truth, saying what they want. They're always the first one to speak in a meeting. Um, and there are some great uh, benefits to that. But there are also detriments to that because it might be that they're intimidating people around them or they're not really listening to what other people, people don't get a chance to speak. So they're not really getting that information from them. And I always say, and you know who you are if you're that personality type. And, uh, uh oh, okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> and then you have another, the other, and the other extreme, the other pole, pole you could say, is the respectful part where you're more concerned about maintaining the peace and, and, the, and the relationship and not rocking the boat and you're caring for people. And that's a great quality to have, but, and it has benefits, but the detriment can be is that you're not taking care of yourself and that you're not speaking your truth and you're not getting your needs met. So the, so I would say the idea is to find the alchemy of the two is to, and that's what respectful confrontation is, is to find a way that you come into more balance, that your confrontations are more respectful and how you respect people can still have a level of confrontation that can have a very beneficial impact. And I think that's really key, especially what we're seeing in the activism movement and, uh, and a lot of the movements around uh, wanting to create inclusive space is that uh, it's, it's, it's a great uh, goal to want to have 
But I believe that the more inclusive you want your space to be, your community, your workspace, your family, your neighborhood, the more inclusive you want it to be, you must create systems of respectful accountability. Because in essence, the more inclusive it is, what you're doing is you're eliminating a very old, what I call 20th century and previous hierarchical system, which has a built-in accountability sense, um, system in it. Basically, you know, you know what, if it's a hierarchical system, it's, if it's, it, it's basically you stay in line, and if you don't, you're fired or you're kicked out or whatever. So when you let that go, where's your account? What's the system that holds one another accountable? to not only hold people accountable for what they are not doing or where they need to grow, but also to help people see how they can flourish in that system. And how do you hold yourself accountable? So that's really the, an important aspect of this is that uh, you begin to alchemically mesh all the different ways that you can be in relationship um, in a way that is dynamic and stays in terms of presence and connection. Great question from the audience, by the way, from Wayno. And by the way, um, he and I are friends and, and, and I pronounce my name Wayne and his, I think is also Wayne, but he pronounces it Wayno, W-A-N-O. And he asks, does respectful confrontation need to be promoted early and often as opposed to awaiting ultimate warfare? That is a great question. And uh, you got about 17 hours to discuss that. <laughs> no, I would say that I would say on some level, initially, based on how you asked the question, I would say yes. That, uh, as I said, respectful confrontation and fierce ability are more conflict prevention methods. And uh, pre prevention methods, but also a way of maintaining healthy, uh, empowered relationships and ways we communicate. If if it's gotten to the point where there's warfare, then um, I don't think there's a question anymore of respectful. I think there's just a question of make sure that we survive and there and we, we we there's not a lot of fallout. Although I do think that if there is extreme conflict, whether that's warfare, whether that's to the point of warfare or not, or just like in a relationship, like a divorce or a breakup or something like that, where it may feel like warfare, there is a way to navigate the pain um, that people are experiencing to get to um, uh, the other side of that. And I'm not sure if that is, uh, if I could add here, is that in the Fierce Civility book, the methodology that I've created I talk about a six-step pathway to hope. And uh, in that, because for me, the whole fear civility philosophy that I bring up is, is what is it going to take for us to get to a culture of uh, lasting peace? And so I delineate between the difference between peace and lasting peace. And uh, if I can mention the six... Uh, six steps of that pathway uh one of them the first one is to um, break the gridlock of polarization so if you think about a conflict and any conflict that you're in whether it's between two people or nations it's stuck it's stuck in a pattern of of polarization and the way and i say polarization is stagnant it's basically like two rams that are just ramming into each other locking horns 
and and pushing. I'm right. No, I'm right. You're bad. No, you're bad. I want to win. No, I want to win. And then you get stuck in that pattern. Uh, and all of that, think about all the energy and resources and in some senses, lives that are wasted trying to ram your 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 way of seeing something. And the whole purpose of the work is to be able to pivot if the rams could pivot. Rams don't do that. They'll knock heads. They'll bounce away from each other. They shake it off and they come back and playfully continue their, their game in that. So the first thing is to break the gridlock. The second thing is to go through a process of healing and reconciliation. That's the second uh, step of the, of the pathway, uh, which I can say a lot more about. And then the third pathway from the healing and reconciliation, what you've done with what started as opposing forces, you then have created alliances in surprising places. Once you've created those alliances in surprising places, you then have to set the groundwork uh, for how to collaborate and communicate in a way that is going to uh, not get stuck in I'm right, no, I'm right, but in a way that will actually lead to, to uh, everyone being able to contribute their needs, their viewpoints, uh, so that you can get to win-win solutions. And the fifth step is coming up with what I call resilient and sustainable solutions. And I, I'll like to say more about that. Uh, that have the, a, a stronger sense of success because you've gone through this whole process with these new alliances to bring in diverse uh, viewpoints and diverse needs. So you're creating something that has a better chance of surviving. Uh, because of the diversity of the viewpoints. That's the fifth step. And the sixth step is then creating from that a blueprint for a culture of lasting peace. And so it, for those of you who are like philosophy, the, it, to think about oftentimes how we get stuck in stagnant polarization and we're not moving forward with resolving some of our issues is that we create false polarities. For instance, I don't believe that the polarity of war is peace. The so I'm going to say just so my belief is the polarity of war is not peace. A polarity is simply the negative charge of something. I'm using polarization, po po polarity in the sense of magnets, of north and south pole. It's an electrical charge. And if you think of electrical charges, if you take a positive, the positive side of a magnet and put it against the positive side of a, of a magnet, they repel each other. So when you come with a pro something and the other comes with a pro something, you're just going to constantly repel each other. So yeah, so and it's, and peace in itself is a positive charge. War in itself is a positive charge. So the negative, the the um the polarity of Peace is not peace. The polarity of war is not war. So if you're in a warring situation and you want to get to peace, you're not going to just get to peace. That's why it never works. You have to first address the, the first issue of the polarity of war. You have to get to not war. Not war could mean that people put down their ammunition. 
but that doesn't mean that there's lasting peace. That doesn't mean that people are going to dance through the streets hugging each other like, oh, let's all work together. It simply means that people stopped having war. So then there's the whole process of moving from not war and understanding what not peace is to peace. And I, I, I've had great conversations with uh, Monica McWilliams, who was uh, uh, from, from Ireland many years ago. She, she um, was, when, when they were still warring, North, North, Northern Ireland and Ireland, and um, she said, one of the reasons why we're not, that we're not seeing any negotiations working is because there's no women at the table. So she started a party, a women's party, and she got uh, and she got a, a seat in parliament and was invited to the table. And I'm not saying it's because she single-handedly did that, but I was at a peace conference with her in Sweden, and we had amazing talks about the difference between peace and lasting peace. And she was said to me, she said, Joe, my work, she said her work is about establishing peace, just getting people to sign treaties. She said, your work is the more difficult work of getting people to learn new skills and ways of operating with each other that keep and could maintain that peace. And that for me is a blueprint of creating a blueprint for lasting peace. That's have a we, lot. I know I shared a lot there, but. Uh, have we ever had lasting peace in the history of written civilization? I'm not an historian, so I can't really answer that accurately, but I would say probably not. And I, you know, one thing I learned, and I might be opening up a big thing, I've done a lot of work in the Middle East, <clears throat> uh, mostly work, pretty much always working with women's rights organizations in Israel, the Palestinian territories, in Lebanon, in, in Jordan. And um, I did a lot of research and study on the region, Israel. Palestine, all of that. And, and it's remarkable to see that how much strife there has been for thousands and thousands of years. And I just find it remarkable that people currently think that they have they know what the solutions are to those problems that go back thousands of years. And it informed me of something important for myself was that on some level, peace is a modern concept. We all talk about it like there should be peace, but you know, if you, no one was really talking about world peace and things like that in the 1800s or the 1500s. And so in that region, there was never really a question of should there be peace? It was simply a question of who's going who's gonna to conquer and take control of that land. So I think it's a, that, that we have to remember that for many of the people there, they're not, then they may not be interested in peace. They may only be interested in being in control. And that's all. I mean that, that and it, and we're talking about when I say thousands of years, we're talking not only of 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 Hebrews and 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 Israel and, and and Palestinian and Arabs, we're talking about uh, Romans and Christians and Canaanites and 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 uh, and and the list goes on. So uh, I, I don't I don't know if we've ever really had lasting peace. What what do we have right now? I'm I'm only thinking of this because of I've spent some time in the, the Western United States with Native Americans and um and and I think I'm pretty knowledgeable about the history of conflict between Native Americans and 
all of us who are the the, the pioneers that, that are not Native Americans, just through our um, family trees. We haven't had visible war since, what, maybe the early 1900s, but potentially before that. There have been little uprisings here and there. And yet, I know a lot of Native Americans living on reservations, off reservations, whatever, who are very unhappy and, and are not at all at, quote, peace. I guess that would be the right word, but they're not warring either. So that, that's right. an interesting, I'm just, I, and I, I don't know that I could put myself into their role and be as um, acceptant as they seem to be of the situation. Yeah, and again, I I can't speak to that and not being a, a Native American, but I can say I can just uh, say that yes, I think if we want to find a blueprint for lasting peace, I think we can learn a lot from the indigenous people of North America of, of various indigenous cultures. That's the blueprint. That's the it's learning to be in right relationship with yourself, with others, and with the planet, with your environment. That's really it. It, it, it's not that complicated on <laughs> a sense of what our what our what our goals can be and that's that's a, that's pono in hawaiian that's that's there's many cultures and many indigenous cultures if each one of us committed every day in our thoughts our words and our actions to be in right relationship with ourselves others and the planet then we could see lasting peace and it would it would radically transform how we're in relationship with each other where where does the um, where does spirituality come into this in terms of um, do you believe there's a basic conflict that's there if a person has a certain kind of spiritual belief versus someone else with a completely different one let's say an atheist versus a theist let's just make it that simple is that a conflict in it in and of itself that's going to be difficult or is that almost like a magnet where they might be able to be attracted I wouldn't call that spirituality. I'd call that religion. Uh -huh. um, uh, the, the true sense of, of spirituality to me is basically uh, <laughs> is know thyself is 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 the is the is the important work of of working on yourself and knowing there's always something to do and having the humility to say that you can't know everything and that you're not perfect and the commitment to take care of others in in my Buddhist uh, traditions. Um, the the definite I find it interesting the definition of love and compassion. The de in Buddhist cosmology, the definition of love is the desire to make another happy and acting on that desire. That's love. And the and the um, the definition of compassion is the desire to alleviate the suffering of others and acting on that desire. And again, it's a blueprint. That's a blueprint. If you can commit in thoughts, words, and actions to make others happy to and to uh, alleviate their suffering, that's where you come into your true spiritual self. You, and it's what I call compassion in action. And if that's the case, then if someone else has a different viewpoint on what their God looks like, if I'm in that space of, of true spirituality, it wouldn't affect me in any way. As long as it that their view their viewpoints are not harming me, 
Um, so and 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 the work I do is very spiritual in nature. A lot of from Eastern philosophies, from Taoism, uh, and from uh, Tibetan, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, of understanding um, to be in in that kind of relationship. Uh, I, I so going back to this idea of yes, just simply not warring does not mean that there's peace. As long as people are being oppressed and harmed, there's not there's no peace there. Um, it may seem on the uh, uh, again uh, from the outside, it may seem there's 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 uh, peace because no one's bombing each other. And that and that and that plays out in our relationships too, Wayne. In this in the sense of uh, that's the chronic niceness piece. We may all sit at the dinner table and very quietly um, smile to one another and and um, and ask how are you how were you today and have those um, conversations, but not seeing all the harm and pain that is happening that no one's talking about. And I have seen that a lot in a lot of um, spiritual communities, a lot of nonprofits, a lot of people who work together with the highest goals from very high values, which is very admirable, but seeing how they are not stepping into their full power and success because they're not seeing that how they're treating one another is not in alignment with the values they have for what they're working on. And that could be, I, I work with companies, you know, organizations, government agencies, uh, corporations, but also nonprofits and 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 communities that are activist communities, um, <clears throat> to help them see that you may have a clear value system for your product and what you're doing, or you may sit in a meditation room and all hold yourself to the highest in terms of what you're practicing. But it's it's sometimes frightening to see how people are not aware of how they're harming each other um, behind the scenes. And not, and then I'm wondering why they're not succeeding. That if you don't, if you don't get that in order, and and so that's another level of. There may not be warring. You may not. They may seem to be getting along and everything, but there's a lot of tension and a lot of ways that they're harming each other. Um, that's eating away at the integrity of the community. Lisa just put in the in the chat. Love is your quote. Love is a desire to make another happy and acting on that desire. What what do you believe is the difference between the two words love and like? Because people use them, it seems like in the same context sometimes, and then in, in almost completely different contexts another time. Love and like. Well, well, what's interesting is I'm not talking about love as a feeling. I'm talking about it as an action almost. If you if you look at it, love is the desire to make another happy. So you are doing love. Um, um, so for me, love and like would be both in a, a state of feeling. And um, and and for me, it's almost the same thing. Of maybe like you could to like someone is also similar to to niceness, whereas love is similar to kindness. I'd rather someone be kind to me than be nice to me. I'd rather someone show me compassion than be nice to me. I don't trust nice in some level. Uh, in some situations, nice is really beneficial, but some aren't. And I'm looking at Areb's uh, question here. What is the difference between peaceful confrontation and argumentative confrontation? It's that same thing. Is that uh, 
in my work, Respectful Confrontation, I talk about the difference between confrontation and conflict. And that we, we what's unfortunate is that we think that they're the same. And if you go to Webster's Dictionary or any dictionary in the world, I think, because I also checked it in Fondale, the Dutch dictionary, I speak Dutch, and I also had my colleagues in Italy check it, and it's all the same, that if you look at the definition of the word conflict, you see that it, it's um, words like fight, battle, to strike, whereas the definition of confrontation is, simply says to cause to meet, to bring face to face in challenge. So the etymology of the word confrontation, there's no animosity in that. And, and so that's how I, to, to answer Arev's question, is that how, that's how I delineate them, is that confrontation, conflict is about, if you want to have, um, if you're, and, and so the answer is your motivation. What's your motivation? For me, a conflict is any encounter that creates separation, the breakdown of relationship, or the disempowerment of another. Any encounter that causes separation, the breakdown of relationship, and the disempowerment of another. That's conflict. And sometimes being nice can cause that. I gave you examples. So in a sense, sometimes being nice causes conflict. Confrontation, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. It's any encounter that, that deepens relationship, brings individuals closer together, and empowers everyone involved yourself and others. Any encounter that deepens relationship, bring individuals closer together and empowers everyone involved. So to answer the question, Arab, is that the difference is if what, your, what is your motivation? If your motivation is to disempower someone, knock yourself out, then you're doing conflict. If your intention is to empower another, if your intention is to, um, is to, is to deepen relationship, Knock yourself out. Do that. Then you're then you're doing what I call confrontation. And I believe the most effective way to deepen relationship, to strengthen a community, to bring about lasting peace, is to have the courage and the skills to confront one other one another in a respectful way. And the basis of that is compassion. And that's a, that you can say that that's a spiritual practice. And and the whole premise of my work, whether it's for-profit or non-profit or, or, the, or the social activism work that, I, that I'm doing, is this premise of creating cultures of mutual empowerment, where we make a contract with each other as a community that we invest a certain amount of time in our day to empower one another. And I say this to corporations, I say this to organizations, and some of my clients have come back to me to say that it's possible. I believe that if you are really um, dedicated to creating a culture of mutual empowerment, then you can go home at the end of the day of a day of work more energized than when you came in. And to me, that's the basis that has to be the basis of sustainability and resilience. Because we, 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 we currently are functioning in a culture, which I think is very colonial, very 20th century and previous, which burns out the workforce and burns out members of a community. And we actually contribute to that thinking, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great because I'm burnt out. <laughs> and that is not going to, um, 
in the long term, you can't sustain that. So the idea, this work is about actually thinking long term, thinking about how can a, an organization or a community be more resilient, and how can we think of how can and create longevity and sustainability, and the key to that is mutual empowerment. Give your definition of that word resilient. Uh, for me, resilience is uh, many definitions for that. It's about thriving not surviving. Uh, resilience is I, I uh, one of the definitions, because a lot of the work I do is also based on um, martial arts and Qigong, Tai Chi, and then various practices. So I bring in those philosophies. So resilience for me is cultivating within yourself um, um, uh, presence, awareness, balance, and flow that when you cultivate for yourself a level of presence uh when you cultivate a, 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 a more of an awareness you're in relationship with with your surroundings with others and yourself and you can maintain a, always try to come back to balance and be in flow with obstacles instead of fighting obstacles but flow with them you're in relationship and that is also a lot of indigenous cultures teach us that a lot of you know, that's no, that's another blue part of the blueprint of lasting peace is to be in dynamic relationship with the environment, with your surroundings, with others and yourself, knowing that it's not static. And uh, and that that's resilience for me, uh, where uh, you're not exerting so much energy to fight flow, to fight the environment but in, 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 in relationship with it. The reason I asked about that word is I think it's one that it's a little bit like the word sustainability. For a time, that word was used heavily in, in kind of living systems and built systems. You want to build a sustainable community. Well, is that really what you want to do? Or do you want to build and then the new word that supplanted it not too long ago, really, 10 years probably, is regenerative. So, oh, you know, I, I really don't want something that just sustains. I don't want it to stay the same. I want yeah. it to get better. So regenerative uh, related to to an improvement. And people think, oh, that's probably a better word. Yeah. I also heard resilience recently become the buzzword. That's why I was asking, because yeah. in the in the well, let's say the the agricultural community or the built environment community, people that do those things to make a living, either one of those. Today, someone who says, I'm a farmer and I am farming resiliently, I think they normally would mean, I, I'm a far, I am a farmer, at least when I say it. I mean, I am growing things today that can be eaten by those that will eat them because they are thriving. We're, they are in a position of where they want to thrive. However, if things change outside of their control, even let's say, and all of a sudden starvation came into play and they were now eating those same things, they wouldn't be eating them to thrive. They'd be eating them to survive. And so that word resilient means do things now because times are good, but do the same things 
even if times were bad. In other words, prepare yourselves and, 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 and live in a community setting where you could be doing things like I, I, have, a, uh, I have a place that I own, uh, which is an old military base that has a bunch of bunkers that were used to store ammunition. And we've now begun turning those bunkers into living spaces. And most of the people that are living in those spaces are only living because they're worried that tomorrow's the world's gonna end. They're, they're totally there because they yeah. think the world's about to be over. And we've said, no, no, that's not what we want this to be. We want you to be excited and happy about living there now and do things that are fun and good now, but yet still be ready if the reason that maybe you bought the place in the first place was to be ready for when times were horrid in the future. So we actually just started literally a plan to do a sculpture community, a, a sculpture place where we're encouraging everybody, do a, don't worry if you can be a good sculptor, just do one, put a sculpture up. Uh, only because that's something that maybe everybody could relate to. I, it's just a thought. But that word is one that I, I think is is hard to explain today. My, it is, my, my. It's a trigger word. I mean, and also in a lot of communities I work with, uh, uh, marginalized communities as well, and they're triggered by that word because it's, uh, oh, look how resilient you are. You know, you live in poverty and and you're still able to survive. Good for you. You know, that's, there's also that. Um, uh, so it is a trigger word, it's, but, uh, but I use it in the sense of actually for that. I've actually, um, <clears throat> when I start, when I coach a leader in an organization, an executive director of a nonprofit, for instance, in the very first session, I say, how do you want to leave this organization when you leave? And not that I'm saying that they should leave soon. They may stay there for 20 years. But if they're not already thinking about how to create a system that can survive them when they're not there, then they're not doing their job well, what they're what they're hired to do. That's the same thing. You can you can flourish and thrive as a leader and in the in the here and now, and you will know that you have really fulfilled your purpose when when you leave, it won't need you, and the system can continue to thrive. And also, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I'm old enough now that I've gone through about six or seven 10 year cycles of building things. And I've always told the people that I work with, when I'm ready to move on, you'll know it because I'll believe that the organization that we've now built together can do two things. One, it can run better without me. And second, I already know probably who it is that's gonna lead it moving ahead. Beautiful. Well, that's that's you're a visionary. That, that, that says to me that you're a visionary. That's my truth. My truth is you're a visionary. <laughs> I think that's right to sense, but I, oh, and, yeah. you know, the, the fear is that you go, you, you wait too long. You, you don't leave when you should have. And, and I've done that. I mean, so as I look back, those, the, the times that I've been most disappointed was when I finally left that leadership role, I had stayed too long because I'd outlived my visionary uh, side of things. So yeah. Well, I, I also want to say that I, I've been doing this now a lot with 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 companies. Is that I'm asking them um, how uh, uh, how resilient is their company in the sense of if they want to see the their value increase, if they want to scale their companies, if they want to be in the long haul. That you know, as as we all know, I don't think I'm the only one who would say it. Is that we're in challenging times, and it probably will get more challenging. 
where it's going to be harder to get resources, money. And, and, and so any company, if it wants to survive the stormy sea, are they ready for it? And I, and I say, have you weatherized your company, right? So in Florida, for instance, I don't think anybody would buy a house at this point if the house wasn't already weatherized to withstand a hurricane. And so in a sense, and that usually, I don't know enough about building, I'm not, a, I'm not an architect but, uh, or a contractor, but that usually has to do with the structure itself. Is the structure stable enough and flexible enough to deal with the, 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 the circumstances? And like the scaffolding, a skyscraper, you have to build in sway into that building. Otherwise, it's going to just snap. So in a sense, are organizations and companies or communities weatherizing themselves to meet the demands of what's coming? And for me, the internal structure of an organization, if you think of scaffolding, you have the joint and you have the connective bar. And for me, the scaffolding of an organization, the joint is the individual. And the connective bar is the interpersonal communication. Uh, is it healthy? And can can the bars be flexible enough in that communication that it can withstand any challenges? And, and are the joints, the individuals, healthy enough to hold all of those structures? And that's kind of like the framework in with, in with which I work with, with organizations. Is to, is to weatherize your company now so that when the challenges come, you can rely on the fact that the individual is thriving and vital and that the and that any tensions or, or unresolved issues in the communication and in the relationships have been cleared so that they're not gonna cause the, the snap of uh, any part of that structure. Real quickly, audience, we're about 20 minutes or so, a little bit less than that, from being finished. And you guys have not asked a lot. Some of you have, but let's uh, raise well, your hands. I've got a comment here that I would love to respond to if uh, Ronald says uh, argumentative incites attention. Yeah, there we go. Ronald. Yeah, and, 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 and I would love from Ron, to hear from Ronald of what he means a little bit by that. But the, the way I would respond to that is I, it's an interesting um, uh, uh, a viewpoint uh, argumentative does incite intention at the intent if the intention in that moment is to simply get attention then that's a it's always about the motivation and all the work I do is and and what's really important with the work particularly the fierce civility work is an important concept I use which is it's not necessarily about the what it's more about the how at least that's what my work offers is a is a is a more upgraded approach on the how people have their viewpoints on 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 climate on the environment on politics on race on all of those on on economics that's the what and i find that we're not coming up with solutions because we only get stuck in arguing our own points and for some reason we seem to believe that if we argue the same point a hundred times that suddenly that's going to make a difference. Or if we just get louder and more emphatic that that's going to change it. It doesn't. And that's when we get caught in this idea of I'm right and you're wrong. Um, so just arguing the points, keeping it in the head and the intellect is not going to, is not solving our problems. So the work that I offer is you may be correct in what you're saying. The, the, there are issues in the environment, 
You're not getting through to the people you want to get through to. So maybe don't focus on what you're saying. Focus on how you're saying it. And oftentimes, the reason why we're not successful in getting our messages across and appealing to the hearts and minds of others to buy into your concepts is because we're not spending enough time on how we're approaching it. So I so I go back to Ronald's comment. Uh, I don't know if being argumentative is going to get the result eventually you want. It may get attention, and that might be what you need at that point to just wake someone up. But then know that that's what your intention is. Your intention at that point is to wake them up. But you also then have to deal with the fallout that if you're approaching them in an argumentative way, they're going to come back to you in an argumentative way. And you may not get to a place where both of you are receptive to come up with win-win solutions. So it's a choice. And the work of fear civility and respectful confrontation is how can you approach people who have different viewpoints, meet them where they are. Well, first you stay regulated so you don't get activated because if you're activated, you're gonna, that's just how nervous systems work. You're gonna get them activated. You stay, you try your best to stay regulated. You meet them where they are not where you want them to be. You can eventually get them there, but you're not going to get them there until you meet them where they are. Once you meet them where they are, you create a space of safety and trust so that they can their nervous systems can relax, relax. And what you're doing is you're creating the circumstances that they become more malleable, more receptive to new ideas. Then you're in a creative dialogue. Then you're in a negotiation where you express your needs, they express their needs. And when both of you can express your needs, uh, you can come up with win-win solutions. And the solutions you come up with, because you're talking with people with different viewpoints, the, so the, the ingredients for those solutions are more diverse. And that's the, you can see that from biodiversity. It, th those solutions will actually take root and, and, and grow because there's more DNA from different viewpoints in it. Because what we see is we, you know, I, I always ask the question, um, why do we think that hanging out with people who already agree with us is going to solve our problems? If already, if hanging out with people who already agree with us, we're going to, we're going to solve our problems, we would already solve them. So to me, the conclusion is we have to find, uh, we have to create alliances in surprising places so that we create diverse solutions that have a like in like in like in the environment a species will survive more if it has diversity in its dna pool in an ever changing environment same thing with our solutions uh, i'm seeing a bunch of more questions there so that that's my that's my take on that is if the if you just need to get attention and you think the only way to get attention, Ronald, at that moment is to be argumentative, try it. But just know that you're going to have to then get them out of their dysregulated state of being in a fight stance. And when and if you can do that, then you can then you can really see solutions happen. So Laura's got Laura is one of our audience and has got a nice long comment and question there. Uh, it, rather than me reading it, everybody's seeing it. So I can. I can read it. I'll read it. Uh, and by the way, Laura, I know Laura. She's a remarkable person. Everyone should know Laura Madden. She's doing remarkable. She has been doing remarkable work for years with uh, preservation of water with uh, in St. Louis. 
and and as well as working now with uh, um, trying to support to empower um, marginalized communities. Uh, um, so I'm honored that she's here, and I'm going to read her question real quick, if that's okay. It seems it seems that for a marginalized community, resilience must focus on the goal of thrivance. They are already schooled in survival. Yeah, if the goal is to motivate and transform. We cannot focus our attention on planning for the negative. Can you talk about the construct for defining resilience in these two very different perspectives, one already in survival and the other more focused on protecting from crisis or loss? I'll see if I can uh, answer that. I think the, the first step in that is to um, recognize uh, the trauma. To so if you go, remember what I said, coming at the, the six-step pathway of hope, the first step is breaking the, the 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 gridlock of polarization, which means shifting out of the 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 habitual that we're in, and the tension of um, which keeps us locked in that state. Once we can start opening that up, then we can see the level of trauma that's being experienced, and then the part the second step is healing and reconciliation. So I would say the first step is to just allow for healing to happen because I believe that's a fundamental issue is that I've been in part of think tanks of brilliant ideas, brilliant for, for, for changing the world for the better with all research, money going into research and all of these things. And, and these they're brilliant ideas, but on some level, they're not gonna work if you're dealing with, with a, a society filled with trauma because in a state of trauma, Anything that is new is is going to be perceived as a threat. That's just how we're built. That's the basic, the autonomic nervous system is that anything that is new or different, we perceive as a, in a state of trauma, we perceive as a threat. So all the greatest ideas can come our way, but if we're in a trauma state, we're not going to be receptive to it. And that could be personal trauma, cultural trauma, generational trauma, environmental trauma, uh, oppression, the list goes on. So in that state to come out of a survival mode to do the necessary healing and to help people find their within, find their power and that they have personal agency is an important first step. And where, where, where they can feel, where they can get out of their survival mode and get into a creative space and share from their heart and their wisdom and their experience. And again, gathering everyone's experience to create a diverse um, set of possible solutions. That's so really nice. And then I see a question from Aaron that kind of relates to and dovetails into what you're talking about, about being activated. And she's wondering like how to be resistant, maybe resilient uh, to when others are not using compassion in confrontation, um, how does one be compassionate? Um, I, so, so uh, just, that's a great question. So, it starts with making sure that you're taking care of yourself and that you're regulated, but also that you're safe. The number in any challenging conversation, whenever you're dealing with people with different views, whenever you're trying to appeal to the hearts and minds of others to stretch them into a a, a a larger viewpoint, there's going to be resistance. They're going to be activated. So a lot of my work when I'm training people, and spe specifically when I'm training people to be facilitators in this work, 
most of the training is about helping them become more skillful when holding space in a room of a lot of resistance. Because that's just the natural process. Uh, uh, when people are have to consider changing or transforming, there's going to be an initial phase of resistance, just how we are. And the more we can help them through that resistance phase to get to the other side of it, then they can expand and open to something else. So uh, the first most important thing, Aaron, is to make sure that you feel safe in any challenging conversation. And at, at any moment you are not feeling safe, remove yourself from the situation. Try to mitigate it. And if that's not going to work, remove yourself from the situation. And what's important is that in the trainings that I offer, we do a lot of embodied work that we begin to feel in our nervous systems the difference between uncomfortable and unsafe. And many of us who have a trauma history or are suffering from chronic stress, which I think is most human beings on the planet right now, the nervous system can't tell the difference between uncomfortable and unsafe. And all of these issues of, of, of helping people transform their viewpoints for the environment, for, for oppressed people or whatever, it's an uncomfortable process. But oftentimes, as soon as we begin to feel uncomfortable, our nervous system says, oh, this is unsafe, and then we go into fight, flight, freeze. And then we're in the argumentative phase. So it's understanding, uh, building a better relationship, a deeper relationship with your nervous system so that when you feel the uncomfortable come up, you have practices and techniques to bring yourself back to balance, to regulation, and staying present and connected, um, and calling people into a higher level of nervous system regulation. And again, if they start getting activated and they're and and possibly harmful, then you you must remove yourself from the situation. What about the, the um, blend of physicality with um, thought? Um, you mentioned it a little bit earlier when you talked about Tai Chi or, or martial arts. Um, how, do we, how do we blend those? I, a personal observation is that most people are way too sedentary that work hard. They, they just lose track of time and all of a sudden they have no physicality in their lives and then they justify that one way or another. What's your observation there? Uh, I think it's a bigger problem than we're not talking about how much of us are, rely on experiencing the world through our devices. We think we're, we think, we think we understand the world because we're reading about it on the internet or, or seeing images on our phone. And we're forgetting that, to, to actually smell a flower, to, to, to lean against a tree um, is a very different experience than seeing pictures of trees and flowers. And that's the same thing with human beings. We think we know human beings because we are, we're well studied in the psychological aspects of people. We've got all the right jargon. We, we are constantly seeing people on screens <laughs> and, and images and talking and texting. But we're, what we're missing out on is what human beings need. There's a whole level of education that happens on a visceral level, on a kinetic level. Not only education, but a level of, of feeling safe in the world, just feeling safe in the world, knowing what that in your own nervous system, you can determine your own safety. 
And when we're not cultivating those skills, then of course we're in a state of paranoia and fear and, 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 and lack of trust uh, and, and depression and isolation. So I, I don't think enough people are talking about it, that uh, that we're that we're 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 not meeting as much in in I always say we're not breathing the same oxygen. We're not we're not we're all touch starved on some level. I should say all of us, but a lot of us are. Um, and, uh, uh, and and I don't think there enough studies are done in how that is affecting our policymaking <laughs> and our leadership and how we're how uh, and how we're engaging with one another. Does that address your question, Wayne? Yeah, I think so. That's very good. Appreciate it. Ronald just said, um, he was just thanking, he said, thank you for the deep dive that you did with his question. Um, we've only got a couple minutes left here, everybody. Again, get your questions or thoughts in if you've got them for Joe. This has been awesome, by the way, Joe. Thank you so much. Lisa, you, you have anything else? Uh, well, I just want to brag about Joe that he has an upcoming TED Talk coming. Oh, posting oh, yeah. a link into the into the chat for everyone because uh, we know people might have the ability to go see you in person at the uh, perform at the TED Talk. And uh, I also want to give a little personal testimonial. I've been studying with Joe for over ten years, and I use this practice with my children, the respectful confrontation, uh, as uh, with them as they were small children. And one of the things that I wanted to share about was like when you're empowering all the voices, when pe the solutions that would come up from our conversations where people would show up to the table, like here's my idea to the problem and here's what I wanna do. And instead of what we learned from our process, employing these, these tools that Joe shared with us is that we stopped showing up with solutions. We came up with ideas, but we weren't rigidly attached to them because through our conversation, the most brilliant idea would show up from our collaborative discussion. And it does take a little bit more time, but as we get better, it got faster. But I just love the fact that the best solution is the one that's going to come it, it always happens in this beautiful, organic moment from the diversity of the conversation. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate that. And it's been, a, it's been an honor to be working with you for so long. And thank you for your dedication and, and care for me and the work. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, I think that's an important message I'd like to leave you with and that that's where there's hope is that um, the solutions to our current problems may not exist yet. They're waiting to to emerge. It's like a it's like a flower that is just waiting for the proper sunshine or whatever to allow it to pop open and bloom. Uh, and that and that is the key. And that's and and those and those solutions are ready to emerge. What they need is a more diverse uh, the alliances in surprising places, and it's a messy process. It's a it's a slow process. And as, as Lisa said very clearly, it's people who come where they can express from their heart and their needs. And, and when that's all presented, then uh, in the, and that's the whole movement on creative emergence. It's, this, is, this is part of um, uh, organizations. And, and, we've, and we've seen that where people have said, um, organizations or whatever, in the, in the past where 
we thought there were no solutions, suddenly new solutions emerge. And I just want to say that if you're more interested in this work, I've got the two books, Mastering Respectful Confrontation, uh, Fear Civility. Uh, that's, a, that's the other book. Uh, check out my website, joeweston.com or fearcivility.org. Uh, and we're doing amazing work internationally uh, with organizations, with, with communities, with individuals in various realms, just ch check out the website. And, um, and, and you know, I, I have a six step pathway to hope. And uh, people often ask me, Joe, do you really have hope <laughs> at this time? And what I say is I, I may not be optimistic about what might be coming sometime soon, but I do have hope. I have hope in, in the, the human spirit and I think that there, are, there, there doesn't have to be all of us that want to commit to a world of lasting peace. It just has to be enough of us. And I've been, and I just want to say, from where I am, you know, the the uh, the uh, media, the social media, the news outlets, it's not sexy. All the good things that are happening in the world is not sexy to them. It's not profitable. Conflict is profitable to them. But there's an enormous amount of an emergence of creative activism and people who are committed to global unity and peace. Um, and that the, the goal is for us to reach out and make connections. And the more that we can connect, that's like a tipping point. That's where I have hope. Um, and, and, and we're not that far from it. Again, it doesn't have to be all of us, just enough of us. Well, let's be those folks, everybody. Um... For those of you who are here live, because we get about 10x the number of people that watch this as a replay in the next week that we're then that we're here live, tell everybody about this because we are recording it and it will be put up on the Eat Community website within the next 48 hours, and you can have you can go back and watch it again. A lot of the links, everything that you see, or all of them, will be available. And Joe has done an awesome job here. Lisa, thank you so much for inviting Joe. And, and thank you, Arib and Mark and all our staff for putting everything together. And Joe, you have a great rest of your week. And thank, thank you. you. And I'll just say to Mark, why don't you take us out, Mark? Right. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community Podcast.